People of God, hear the word of the Lord, the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Well, people of God, uh, this word really sets before us a, a tremendous challenge Uh, to live the Christian life, or as I would like to think upon it and uh, consider it, covenant living. Uh, Certainly that word covenant, as we mentioned this morning, doesn't appear in the text, but the great elements of covenant do, the emphasis on grace, the emphasis on promises. And so the question is, Are you living according to works or are you living according to promise? Do you trust good works in your relationship to God or do you trust the promises of God that are revealed in Scripture? And when you think on those things, you might ask yourself this question. Do your relationships in life reflect the most important relationship you have? Your relationship 
with, if you're married, husband or wife. A parent and a child. Your relationship with this church. Even your relationships at work. What are those relationships rooted and grounded upon? Covenant living or good works? I like to think of it in terms of a tree. And on one side you have the tree of life, which is the covenant of grace. And on the other side there's the tree of death, which is a covenant that is fundamentally based in works. And in the tree of life, there are roots that that are rooted in the soil, the good soil of promise, the promises of God. And there is faith in those promises. And in the tree of death, the roots are rooted and grounded in the sand of performance or works righteousness. And where there is works righteousness, the motivating factor is ultimately fear. A fear of rejection. A a fear of punishment. A fear of failure. But if it's rooted in the promise, then the motivation is love. Love for God. And love for neighbor. Rooted in promise. And in the in that tree, there is rooted in performance. There is nothing but an, an ongoing enslavement. One is a slave to the relationship. They're enslaved. And they're never free. But in our relationship to God, it isn't in terms of, we're using slave in a different illustration than this morning. It's, it's not enslaved to sin, but our sonship, our, the fact that we are children of God, that relationship is firmly established. And it is not dependent upon my works. My works flow out of the living relationship that I have with God. Those of you who are married can simply ask it this way. Do you live in a marriage that's filled with fear? That says something like, well, I can only stay married, and I really hope this is none of your experiences. I can only stay married if I do this, this, and this, and then I can control my spouse so that they won't be angry with me, so that they'll stay in a relationship with me. And so my relationship with my spouse is constantly dependent upon my performance. Or is your relationship with your spouse, your husband, your wife, Rooted in a reality of promise that establishes a relationship that simply exists. Husband, wife, marriage. No fear of rejection. No fear of punishment. 
No ultimate fear of failure. Doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in that relationship, but we don't live out of the fear. Our fundamental relationship is not one of fear. That fundamental relationship of not living out of fear, but living upon the promises of God is what the text is all about. Focusing on our relationship with God, which then ought to be reflected in our other relationships in life as well. Because God, the covenant living, exists within the reality of God's giving. Giving us promises, point one. Giving us communion, point two. Giving us freedom, point three. And giving us commands, point four. So, God's promise. It is set before us in the text in verse 4. He has called us. He, he, uh, grace and peace be multiplied as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. The promises are given out of God's glory and virtue out of God's divine power. God is the one that gives us all things necessary for covenant living. First of all with Him, then in relationship to ourselves and to one another. This is the covenant of grace promises. And they are exceedingly great and precious. The word great here is, is just a made-up word. I like to make up words, especially when I'm reading to my young grandchildren. I make them up, and they look at me funny, and they say, that's not a word, Grandpa. Right? So, and and there, this word is a made-up word. Uh, you children in school, you might be learning about this. We go, great Greater and greatest. Great, greater, and greatest. The word here is like the word greatest, but it has another word connected to it. It's just piled on. And that's the word mega. And that is actually the word. It's mega. So it's the mega greatest, or I might think of something like it's the greaterest The greaterest thing, it is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it's a superlative of a superlative. you, You can't get any greater than this. It's mega great. Because these promises are the greatest thing that any person can have and know and believe in. The promises of God. Uh, They are precious. They are very great. And they are declared to be precious promises. Jesus talked about the precious nature of the promises in the kingdom of God. And some of his parables, Matthew 13, uh, Matthew chapter 13 
44 through 46 has a couple of those short uh, parables. We read, again, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew uh, 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found, uh, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had, and he bought it. It was the most precious thing that he could ever imagine having. Is that how you look at the precious, mega-great promises of God? Are they the most valuable thing in your home, in your mind? The promises of God. The covenant promises. The the promises are not set before us, particularly in this verse. They're just referenced. Because Peter is assuming we, we know a lot of them. There are already promises in the text. And we'll look at that in a moment. But, but these covenant promises, the central covenant promise, and I would say, maybe I'd better say one of the central, because I don't want to have a debate about, well, is it the central? But it is the reoccurring promise from Genesis 17 to Revelation 21. And what is that promise? You see, the promise of the forgiveness of sins is a promise that that is a promise that's tied to the greater promise. To the greater promise. What is that promise? Genesis 17, verse 7. God to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here's the promise. To be God to you and your descendants after you. To be God to you. God has promised to be our God. Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 7 in the anticipation of the outpouring of the newness of the new covenant of the New Testament, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Hebrews 8, verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares of the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people, reflecting on Jeremiah 24, 7. And there are many other places in the New Testament, but Revelation 21, verse 7, at the very end of the Bible, Genesis 17, at the very beginning, at the very end of Scripture, what is the one of the key and central promises? Revelation 21, verse 7, And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Forgiveness of sins will be fully and totally accomplished in eternity 
But the reality that God will be our God and we will be His people is an everlasting experience. The reality of God's forgiveness will always be there. But that promise, I will be their God and you will be my people, is so central to the Scripture. Peter had already declared it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are God's people. What a promise. And of course, that promise is brought about because of a Messiah, because of the Christ, because of Jesus, Savior, Mediator, Liberator, Lord, Friend, Brother, God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Kinsman Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Sacrifice of Sins, all connected to promise. A promise of salvation, of eternal life, of the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promises of God are all over the Word of God. If you look at, uh, at verse 1, and, then, and that's simply by outright declaration, and there's just by implication the promises are on every page, almost every verse. Verse 1 is the promise of a like precious faith. Verse 2, the promise of a righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse, two, ver- verse 1, verse 2, the promise of grace and peace multiplied. Uh, Verse 3, the promise of gifting us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Verse 4, the promise of giving promises. I promise I will give you promises. The promise of partaking the divine nature, verse 4, which we'll look at in a moment. The promise of a fruitful life in Christ, verse 8. The promise of the forgiveness of sins, verse 9. Do you see the vastness of the promises of God? Uh, Dr. Joel Naderhood wrote a book, Promises, Promises, Promises. The Word of God is filled with promises for His people that we root and we focus our faith on, and that is the soil out of which we live. Covenant living. Covenant living. So that we experience this as God's people. We've given the great and precious promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. That becoming partakers of the divine nature is another way of saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, there are some really wild and crazy declarations concerning these verses right here that one of the not quite passing, but still somewhat popular, called the Word of Faith Movement, one of the, la- the 
previous generation's top guns in that situation were, I won't call them preachers, false teachers, Kenneth Hagin, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer. Uh, These people would not hesitate when they were looking at this verse, and in fact, they'd look at this phrase and they'd say, see, there it is. You can say with me, we are gods. They actually encourage their congregation not just to say, praise the Lord, but we are gods. Praise God. They say, we are gods. You ever, ever, I haven't listened to them that much, but I, I did read about them to the point that I know that that's one of the things they do. It's just bizarre. What is this saying? It's not saying that we, be, we, we, we somehow take upon ourselves the divine nature and become gods. The word partake. You got to think of the word, is the word uh, that Jesus uses when, when he gives uh, the cup of blessing that we bless. It is not a participation in the blood of Christ. It's the word partake. For we all partake of the one bread. Partake. Partake is also the word that can be translated fellowship or communion. And that's how we describe the Lord's Supper. It's a partaking. It's a communion. It's a fellowship. This is talking about that intimate relationship, personal relationship we have with God. We partake of the divine nature. We we enter into a living relationship with the sovereign, almighty God. Creator of heaven and earth. It's the word koinonia. It is communion. Intimate fellowship with. And God is the God who has then also freed us. We've been freed from enslavement to fear and enslavement to the world and enslaved relationships with ourselves, with the devil, with the world, with a false understanding of what a real relationship with God is. A world of misery and pain and suffering, of deadness and sin. And the declaration is, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. (coughs) Again, the word escaped here is not that you are a great escape artist. The word escape has the implication that you were freed. There was no way you could escape. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a great uh, commentator of the last century, wrote, But the gospel makes me see that I am in a dangerous condition, that I am corrupt within, and that there is corruption without, and that I am far away from God and separated from God, and I am in this enslaved, chained, dead relationship. And as a sheep caught in the briars who has no hope of escape, God frees me and I escape this because of His grace and His mercy. 
And for this very reason, give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. You see, verse 4, 1 through 4, is all about the blessings of God being showered upon us. It's like the middle section of Romans. It's, it's like the middle section of the Heidelberg Catechism. You start with man's misery, and then there is the focus on deliverance and all that God has for us. And then we get to performance. Then we get to the works. Then we get to the action that we're involved in. But if we start with the, the soil of performance, if, if our works are the basis of our life, we'll never be free. We'll always be enslaved. God would have us not to base our living, our covenant living, upon works, but upon promises. And for this very reason, then in every aspect of your life, giving all diligence, and the word give all diligence there is means now you are involved. Now you're involved. Some of you may be in sports, like sports. I met a family today, they like some sports. And that and they're they're involved in some sport activity. And people can be very diligent in that. I had a son who was involved in college sports, Division Two school. And that was that was there was diligence there. You you were diligent. You're like putting in three plus hours a day. Three hours a day in training at a minimum. And that's not even that's not even a program that demands your whole life, as it were. There is diligence. There is commitment. There is a zeal. There is a time commitment. How much zeal and diligence are you involved in, in in walking in the path of the Lord? Again, that's walking based on the promises. Which means you're coming to know the promises better. But you add to these things. It's an entire lifestyle. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brother kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. The characteristics of a Christian life, but the goal and the purpose and the zeal and the striving for those things as believers in Christ. But there's a great truth in this passage concerning this. It's one of the most challenging challenges that I see in Scripture. But one of the greatest, what a great promise. Not the greatest promise, but a great promise. And here it is. For if these things, verse 8, are yours and abound, 
Here's the promise. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be neither barren nor unfruitful. God will bless you. You will will produce fruit, the fruit of peace, the fruit of love, the fruit of joy in the relationship, relationship with God and others. You You will bear fruit. You'll never have an unfruitful moment. But there's great challenge here as well. It's a great promise. It's a great challenge. It says, if these are yours and abound, if they increase, back to the first verse, second verse of chapter 1, grow in the grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the blessing of God coming upon us. And then as we receive the blessing of God of increased grace and peace, then we are called to reflect that in our lives, rooted, rooting our faith on the promises of God. And then we are to abound. We are to grow in these things. We're, we're to strive for growth in these things. And if you're growing, then you're fruitful. But if you're not growing, you're not fruitful. That's a great, great promise. That means that we may have an eight-year-old believer in this room who's growing in Christ, and they are absolutely fruitful. And I'm sure this is not the case, but you may have a 75-year-old elder who may think, oh, I've attained. Now, none of the elders here would say that, right? But if they did and they say, well, I've attained, I don't have to grow anymore then their work is not fruitful. It's not. It doesn't matter how much knowledge I have, how much I've grown in the past. I am called by God to continue that to the day He calls me home. Or I'm no longer mentally able to comprehend it. And so God calls us to this. And that means that the youngest believer on fire for Jesus with very limited knowledge may be far more fruitful for the kingdom and for Christ than the one who has the Heidelberg Catechism and the New Testament memorized. Because you need to continue in that. But it also sets before us that generation that has walked with the Lord and they come to that point and I go see them in the nursing home and they say to me, but pastor, I just don't know that, that I'm very helpful to anybody. And I say, to, do you love the Lord? Yes. And, and then I oftentimes uh, I just had an older lady in our congregation said to me, you know, I, I really didn't start reading through the whole Bible until just about, you know, just a few years ago. And it's such a blessing. I'm, I'm learning so much. And I said, well, you're... I had no hesitation, even before she said that to me, to say to her, you're grown. I, I know you love the Lord. I know you're growing in Him. I know you want to grow in Him. You're fruitful. That's why I don't feel like it. I don't care what you feel like. The promise of God is you're fruitful. So be encouraged. 
The outer man may waste away, but the inner man doesn't. And you're fruitful for the kingdom. Grow in the grace and the knowledge. Be steadfast. Don't give up. Press on to the goal. And bear fruit for the kingdom. Bear fruit for Christ. As you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul set that before us uh, this way as he talked about how we put off the old and we put on the new in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with a... But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We are renewed. The grace of God is being showered upon us. Therefore, be diligent. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, O God, that it may stir us to be ever more diligent in adding to our faith knowledge, knowledge, self-control, to Christian love. And so, Father, may we be a people who grow in grace and knowledge and rejoice in the promises that you give. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to number 172. Number 172, we'll sing together all the stanzas.